Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There was that part of me that was so afraid that someone would look at me and go, no, you don't have ADHD, you're just looking for an excuse. And that fear kept me from addressing this and bringing it up to a doctor until I was 22. And I was just crying on my kitchen floor because I couldn't get a grasp of my life. And that's when I finally called my doctor and we talked about it and she ended up agreeing to the diagnosis and start treatment. And truly that um, was an amazing moment. It was really kind of life-changing. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Unladylike. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And that was an Unladylike listener named Allie. Allie was one of dozens of unladies we've heard from about getting diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood. ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it's one of y'all's most requested topics. And from that clip of Allie alone, Caroline, I kind of get why. Like, she says it herself. Getting an ADHD diagnosis was kind of life-changing. Yeah, Kristen, you and I were also struck by how many other listeners had experiences similar to Allie's. They grow up struggling with managing their schedule, meeting deadlines, staying organized— they finally hit a breaking point, like Allie crying on our kitchen floor. Then a professional is like, guess what? It's not you. It's ADHD. <laughs> yeah, a listener named Allison described it as getting an answer to a question she didn't even know to ask. We heard from another listener named Catherine who said, getting diagnosed helped me lift a lifetime of shame for things I thought just made me bad. A lifetime of shame, Caroline. Like, that is huge. That is massive. A listener named Frankie sent us a voice memo that perfectly illustrates that ADHD diagnosis before and after. <sighs> this has been such a huge life-changing help for me. And I just, like, think about all the suffering I went through and all of the anxiety I went through and all of the pain. And I describe it as 
being a car on ice. And so much of my life, I've just been spending half the gas tank with my wheels spinning out, trying to go forward. And now all of a sudden, someone has salted the road. And now I can just press the gas pedal and go forward. Caroline, just hearing the emotion in Frankie's voice. I know. I know. I I think it's easy for people who haven't experienced that pain of undiagnosed ADHD to misunderstand and even side-eye it, which is exactly why we wanted to talk about the pattern of struggle, breaking down, and breaking through with help from unladylike listeners who've been there. So this episode, we want to find out What's going on with women getting diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood? And why can it feel so life-changing? Okay, Caroline, before we get into the gender of it all, could you please tell our dear listeners what on earth is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder? Yeah, well, basically, ADHD is a highly genetic disorder that interferes with how our brains regulate our behavior. Listener Allie, who we heard from at the top of the show, describes it as a kind of constant mental gridlock. So there's the executive dysfunction, which is when the part of my brain that knows what to do can't quite communicate with the part of my brain that actually tells me what to do. So simple tasks become these huge, undefinable hurdles for me. It's very frustrating. It sounds frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And that communication breakdown in the brain is why folks with ADHD often have a harder time with things like staying focused, alert, and motivated, which is also very relatable. Funny story, Kristen, uh, my therapist once told me that I probably have some level of undiagnosed ADHD because of how my brain apparently decided to respond to Wellbutrin. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Wellbutrin is an antidepressant, and that is why I'm taking it. Um, But it also targets the same brain chemicals that are affected by ADHD, And so when I started Wellbutrin, like, all of a sudden, I could focus. I could sit down and get my fucking work done. So I can attest to the importance of those little brain chemicals. Well, and and those little brain chemicals and that communication breakdown you just described can result in one of three different types of ADHD. Hyperactive impulsive type ADHD— inattentive type ADHD, and combination type ADHD. And if y'all didn't write all of those down, don't worry, because that's just a bunch of fancy lingo that I like to think of as ADHD's Neapolitan ice cream, you know, because it comes in three different behavioral flavors. <laughs> Genius. Okay, what what is the first ADHD flavor? Okay, so... <laughs> Let me break this down. I think, Caroline, that our predominantly hyperactive, impulsive type of ADHD, that's going to be your chocolate, okay? It is the stereotypical ADHD. It looks like restlessness, fidgeting. You know, it's the kid who can't sit still in class, and and you probably don't want to give him too much ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, so that's chocolate. What is vanilla? 
All right. I would I would say our vanilla is going to be inattentive type ADHD because really, you know, your vanilla is kind of the quiet hero in the Neapolitan trio. So inattentive type ADHD is often less noticed than our hyperactive chocolate. And it tends to look like daydreaming, disorganization, forgetfulness. Like it's a lot more internal. And that leaves us, of course, with strawberry. And for that, we'll let unladylike listener Catherine give us the scoop. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I have combination type, which means that I'm a mixture or a combo of inattentive and hyperactivity type. Um, So that means that most of my ADHD happens in my head. So it's more inattentive, spacey, thoughts racing, distraction, um, with a little bit of physical hyperactivity too. I, I do fidget a lot. So to recap, we've got hyperactive impulsive chocolate, our inattentive vanilla, and our combined type strawberry, which is a mix of those impulsive and inattentive behaviors. Mm, okay, but here's the meltdown. <laughs> You're getting the hang of it, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> ADHD is the most commonly diagnosed neurodevelopmental disorder in children. So, Kristen, why are we hearing from folks like our listener, Allie, who spent years feeling too scared to ask for help? Why was Allie worried that she'd be dismissed as just looking for an excuse for not working hard enough? Because stigmas and stereotypes, Caroline. And I do not have an ice cream analogy for this one (laughs) because it just stinks. So as far as stigma goes... Like, ever since the rate of childhood ADHD really began rising in the 90s, critics have called it fake news. You know, it's like, oh, oh, this is just an excuse for lax parenting and kids who don't want to behave. Now for the gender stereotyping. ADHD was first clinically defined just based on boys' hyperactive impulsive behavior. Like, Kristen, we didn't even get the first long-term study on girls diagnosed with ADHD until 2002. So, until relatively recently, ADHD was stereotyped as just a disruptive boy thing. But in fact, our gender stereotyping continues when we break down those different flavors of ADHD. So, like... In girls, those chocolate hyperactive impulsive behaviors get them labeled as just being overdramatic, too emotional. She's just so hormonal, right? But when it comes to our inattentive vanilla, for one thing, that type of ADHD is much harder to diagnose and notice because it is more internal. The symptoms are more internal and also Girls are the ones who are likelier to get diagnosed with that. But unfortunately, the forgetfulness and spaciness associated with inattentive type ADHD tends to get written off in girls as them just being airheads or ditzes. Mm -hmm. Like, Caroline, as if we needed sexism sprinkles (laughs) on top of our Neapolitan ADHD ice cream. (laughs) I don't want it. I don't want it. Me neither. (laughs) And this reminds me of an email we got 
from a second listener named Allie. She wrote, It took me until I was 20 to realize I had ADHD. Everyone, down to my family members, thought that when I couldn't filter what I was saying or when I fidgeted, that I lacked self-discipline. That notion that kids like Allie are too lazy, you know, and just need more self-discipline is one of the most harmful ADHD myths, especially when you factor in race. Like these days, I, I think that it's accurate to say that ADHD is stereotyped as, yes, a boy thing, but even more so as a white kid thing. Because regardless of gender, white English-speaking students are way likelier to get diagnosed with and treated for ADHD. Meanwhile, students of color who show any ADHD symptoms are likelier to just get labeled as bad kids. Now, let's also talk about age, because we know that boys outnumber girls when it comes to childhood ADHD diagnoses. But that's not the case when it comes to adult ADHD diagnoses. In fact, are you ready for a staggering statistic? I hope. I feel like this could be a whole new segment of the show. Staggering statistics. (laughs) Is Caroline ready? (laughs) Okay, here we go. According to the CDC, between 2003 and 2015, the rate of ADHD drug prescriptions rose 700% for women between 25 and 29 years old. Again, that's the rate of ADHD drug prescriptions for women in their late 20s, up 700%. 700 yes caroline would would you call that a staggering statistic (laughs) yeah i mean that statistic is fucking staggering Kristen. (laughs) clearly there have been a lot of girls who have struggled and coped with undiagnosed adhd So what happens to them as they grow up, and what does it take for their ADHD to finally get recognized? We'll get to the bottom of that when we come back from a quick break. A big part of my ADHD has just been an imposter syndrome. So I've always done well in school. I was always it was always written on my things like, oh, a pleasure to have in class and stuff like that. But like inside, it just felt like I was always like two disasters away or two mess ups away from catastrophe kind of thing. Um, so just not really feeling on the inside what people were telling me on the outside. We're back. And that was an unladylike listener named Alexa. Also, apologies to everyone whose Alexas we just set off. (laughs) When we left off, we raised the question of what happens to girls with undiagnosed ADHD as they grow up. And long story short, ADHD symptoms are not like a fine wine, y'all. They do not magically get better with time, especially when they've gone unrecognized. Instead, ADHD can become a beast to live with. There was some point that I felt I couldn't execute anything. I couldn't write as a copywriter or as a, you know, paid blogger. 
Um, I couldn't do my own projects that I wanted to do. And I felt I was, I was getting in my 30s, like mid to late 30s, that I was not reaching any anything. And I was still, you know, under poverty levels and trying to live my life month by month. My house was a mess. And it was very overwhelming. That was an unladylike listener from Puerto Rico named Cindia. And Caroline, not to be too on the nose about this, but living with undiagnosed ADHD as an adult tends to look very unladylike. You know, think messiness, constantly running late, just being generally unable to get your shit done. Yeah, and and that means that a lot of women spend years relying on coping mechanisms as a way of masking their ADHD. So, for instance, Alexa, who we heard from earlier, mentioned that, like, she's had to keep a day planner since she was 10 years old. (laughs) And all of that coping and masking can get really exhausting. Here's Alexa. It's hard when (laughs) my perfectionist brain says you should never make any mistakes. So... Um, There's a lot of internal pressure, I think. I really push back in my brain on the idea that, like, like it was very much a, like, oh, no, like, you don't struggle enough to have ADHD. What if if you go through the process and they tell you, um, actually, you're just making it all up and you're just looking, you're just attention-seeking and stuff like that. So, like, I didn't feel like I deserved it. In fact, women are more likely than men to internalize their ADHD behaviors. And that internalizing comes with self-criticism, self-doubt, and something called rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Caroline, I had never heard of rejection-sensitive dysphoria until literally, like, unladylike listeners told us about it. (laughs) Yeah, same. But a lot of the folks that we heard from identified it as the worst part of living with ADHD— Listener Allie, who we heard from at the top of the episode, described it this way. I had been experiencing this for years, and it was terrifying because I didn't know what it was. Essentially, it's a deep, visceral aversion to the feelings of being rejected, but even wording it like that doesn't do it justice. Because it comes across as, very sensitive, takes things personally, doesn't like rejection, and all of that is normal. But when I would feel rejected, or even when I would just feel a bit out of place, a bit socially anxious, it is as though my tether to reality snaps. And it was horrifying, and I I would wind up in these awful, truly unbearable mental health spirals, and I would just feel so weak. And so pathetic. Kristen, hearing Allie describe rejection-sensitive dysphoria honestly left me feeling a little guilty. Guilty? Yeah, I mean, like when letters started rolling in that mentioned rejection-sensitive dysphoria, I... I kind of side-eyed it. You know, I I was like, is this just another thing like people who call themselves empaths? You know, aren't we all sensitive? (laughs) Yeah. Don't we all fear rejection? I mean, I I know I do. Well, so I looked it up and it's not a medical diagnosis per se. 
uh, it's more like an umbrella term for the emotional dysregulation associated with ADHD. So, like, on the one hand, you know, folks with ADHD, their their brain wiring predisposes them to heightened moodiness. But on the other hand, you know, you've grown up afraid of being criticized as lazy or undisciplined. Yeah, and here's where it is probably unsurprising to learn that many women and girls with ADHD are also diagnosed with mood disorders. And sometimes those mood disorders can almost kind of hide the ADHD symptoms. So here's another listener named Victoria. I was only diagnosed with ADHD a year ago after my son had been diagnosed a year prior. And it was extremely difficult to get that diagnosis because I had been going to psychiatrists and psychologists for years, and my ADHD was often just diagnosed as a part of my anxiety or bipolar. And it really took six doctors and multiple visits in order to really have someone listen to me and be able to understand my symptoms and that my other medication I was on wasn't helping. Another interesting thing about Victoria's voice memo is how she got that diagnosis. So because ADHD is highly heritable, a.k.a. it's in your genes, moms like Victoria often get diagnosed when their kids do. Like, essentially, they recognize their own symptoms in that diagnostic criteria. That kid connection is one of the most common ways women get diagnosed with ADHD. But Kristen, there's another common route. Basically, the wheels fall off. All of those masking and coping strategies, you know, the perfectionism, the striving, it all just crumbles. And these exhausted women reach a breaking point and finally look for help. Yeah, it's it's like Allie crying on her kitchen floor, you know? So why, though, does it take so much just to get some help? We'll learn about some of the moral baggage getting in the way after a quick break. Stick around. We're back. At this point in our ADHD story, the unladies we heard from had reached their breaking point. They finally sought help. They were diagnosed with ADHD. And it's this huge breakthrough moment. So problem solved, right? Yes and no. Yes and no. (laughs) So we heard from a listener named Kayla who got diagnosed with ADHD at 30. And it was definitely a breakthrough moment for her. But she says that even with this newfound awareness, I have problems holding down jobs, paying bills, checking emails, and maintaining relationships. And Caroline, another listener who got diagnosed with ADHD in grad school made a very good point that, quote, the unrealistic expectations of capitalism do not help. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the expectation that we all should fit perfectly into the capitalist hustle machine, you know, or otherwise something must be wrong with us, that is actually embedded in the history of ADHD. Like, physicians have been studying what we call ADHD for 200 years now. And in addition to framing it as a childhood disorder that mostly affects boys— It was also seen as a moral failing in those children. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's travel back to 1902. We are going to a lecture from Sir George Frederick Still, who was considered (laughs) the father of British pediatrics. And he described what we would now call ADHD as, quote, an abnormal defect of moral control in children. (laughs) Now, I don't know if he spoke like that exactly, but I'm just going to assume, <laughs> Caroline. You know, he, he he couldn't figure out another explanation for, like, Ugh, why why do these otherwise healthy kids, like, wh- why can't they just sit still? And his conclusion was that these kids only care about self-gratification. And, y'all, they just really need to get in line. And Kristen, the thing is, I can hear the side effects of all of that moralizing and hand-wringing in the listener letters and voice memos we got. Like, yes, 1902 was a long-ass time ago, but I still think that the stigma of ADHD's original conception as this immoral, immature boy thing gets in the way of girls getting a diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. And and while more women are getting diagnosed these days, there is another kind of hand-wringing and moralizing going on. So, Caroline, do you remember that staggering statistic that blew your socks off Boy, do a little I. bit earlier in the show? Oh, yeah. Never forget, right? So, <laughs> in case y'all forgot, we said that between 2003 and 2015, there was a 700% increase in ADHD drug prescriptions for women in their late 20s. And and to underscore that, that was an increase in drug prescriptions, which is not necessarily the same thing as ADHD diagnoses. And the kinds of prescriptions we're talking about are for stimulants, things like Adderall, Vyvanse, Ritalin. But Caroline, uh... (laughs) As anyone who has been on a college campus lately can probably tell you, (laughs) stimulants have a dicey reputation as well. Yeah, I mean, for just one example, the drug that's now branded as Adderall was actually first sold as diet pills. You know, like my mom was taking a stimulant diet pill back in the 90s that got yanked off the market because it was giving people heart attacks. (sighs) So, like, stimulants, whether they are related to ADHD or not, just people give them a lot of side eye. Absolutely. And I will say that caution is warranted when it comes to taking stimulants. Like, they are not a cure-all, full stop. And neither, though, is getting a diagnosis. Caroline, I say this because of an article I ran across on a little website that loves to peddle some pseudoscience called Goop. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, Goop. So (laughs) this was an article by a child psychiatrist and sort of an ADHD spokesman named Ned Hallowell. 
And tell me what you think about Dr. Hallowell's take on ADHD. According to old Ned, quote, if you're an adult reading this and you feel you are underachieving, learn more about ADHD. Diagnosis and treatment could replace frustration and underachievement with success. The diagnosis of ADHD and the treatment that follows, if done properly, truly can change your life at any age from one of frustration and underachievement, if not worse, (laughs) to one of triumph, fulfillment, and joy. And achievement. And achievement. (laughs) Yes, Caroline, you got the point of why I read that quote. (laughs) He emphasizes achievement so much. And like, y'all, an ADHD diagnosis and certainly a prescription to a stimulant drug are not a panacea. No. And it being sold as one is very concerning. Right. Because you're not replacing your brain or like, yeah, you don't become a new person with a pill. Well, I think I think we are in living in a health and I put air quotes around wellness era that is so emphatic about success, joy, fulfillment. Oh, it's like, oh, my God. Whoa. Like you said, Caroline, there's nowhere to go but up, apparently. Like, (sighs) achieve, achieve, achieve. So I think the the question that I that I have for unladylike listeners is how do we separate ADHD symptoms and its treatment from our culture of productivity obsession right? and the capitalist grind? Is there a pill for that? (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) I think that's such a good question because it's hard to argue with the listener responses that we have already gotten before we even put out an episode. Like, you cannot argue with the heartbreak that those women are describing. Yeah. And the sadness and and at times bitterness that they feel over having had such a hard fucking slog of it through childhood and high school and college and on, mm-hmm. that they are just now getting help and identifying what's going on in their brains. And you can't tell me that those people are all just trying to be capitalist cogs in a wheel. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. But the question you ask is not wrong because, like, we are all boiled in this stew, Mm -hmm. this cis-sexist, hetero-patriarchal capitalist society. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) And one big important thing to note is that it's not just that there can be a silver lining to getting an ADHD diagnosis. Not only do you finally get access to resources, potentially meds and therapy if you you need them, um, but there's also the true fact, Kristen, that getting that ADHD diagnosis can allow people to appreciate their own unique brain wiring. Like, embrace neurodiversity like this world doesn't make a lot of room for it but i think that a lot of listeners that we have heard from really were able to appreciate their creativity 
Yeah. Their creativity. And even Caroline, I'm, I, I don't remember exactly which listener told us this, but she was talking about that rejection sensitivity dysphoria and how really intense and negative it can be. And she says the flip side, though, is that she also experiences a lot of joy. Like there are high highs. And mm-hmm. it seems like the the biggest takeaway for me is that the key to that kind of breakthrough moment that we heard from so many folks was not, you know, kind of the big pharma looming, oh, just give people pills, 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 but rather it was finally having some understanding and a sense of of how to work with themselves rather than against themselves. Mm. So, yeah. like, figuring out how to lean into those jags of hyper-focus where they can be totally sucked into a creative project and really lose themselves in a positive way. But at the same time, developing the resources to just build some structure into their day-to-day lives. Thank you so much to all of our unladies out there who took the time to share their stories for this episode. We heard from so many of you and we couldn't even include all of your voices, but please know that we appreciate you. And if y'all want to share more ADHD experiences, you can always email us. We're at hello at unladylike.co. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at unladylikemedia. And you can support Caroline and me directly by joining our Patreon. You'll get weekly bonus episodes with pop culture recaps, historical deep dives, more conversations about Unladylike that we can't fit into this show. All of it over at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger. And Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week... We've got to get out of the space where we think that trans people are just having this magically, radically different experience. Like, yes, we're fabulous. We're brilliant. We're beautiful. We're amazing. <laughs> you know, we're we're breaking down the binary. But, like, you can do some of that work, too, in your own way. You can also break down the binary. We are talking to one of our personal role models and friends, Raquel Willis. Raquel is a trans activist and organizer, and we got to talk with her about the weaponization of womanhood and the power of the Black trans movement she's helped to build. You don't want to miss this episode, so make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike! We're going to be talking to all sorts of rad women. About all sorts of unladylike stuff. Maybe starting with our favorite, smashing the patriarchy. Forgetting your tampons. (laughs) Taking them out and throwing them at people. Wearing the wrong size jeans. (laughs) Telling your father-in-law what you really think. Hell, telling your father what you really think. Having a nip slip and saying, okay. Fine. Finally pushing your mother-in-law down the stairs. Not shaving past your knees. (laughs) I never knew!
I also don't shave the backs of my legs. And never washing your bra. Ever. Ever. Stitcher. <laughs>